0: This Intelligence Squared podcast is supported by Audible.com, a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. The Intelligence Squared audience now has the chance to try Audible by downloading an audiobook free. One title you may consider is A Bend in the River by V.S. Naipaul. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash debate. That's audiblepodcast.com slash debate. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
1: Every time I publish a book, the first thing I'm asked is, what's it about? And, and what, what the themes are, and it puts me it puts me in an awkward position because i i don't work that way at all i don't have ideas and generate narratives in order to to illustrate them and in fact when i'm not when i'm not writing when i'm actually not writing fiction i scarcely have ideas at all and it, it I find that to be a, a, a fairly happy state for the most part. <laughs> but when I write when I write fiction, for you know whatever whatever reasons, I find ideas through through the narratives. They're not they're not always they're not always very defined, but as I continue with the narrative, they they tend to recomplicate and circle around and come back. And and you know at the beginning of my career I secretly suspected that I was only pretending to be a novelist and that I'd found a, a way to cheat and do something that looked like a novel. And, and was shaped like one, and provided an experience rather, rather like reading one, but that I was actually cheating because I was forcing the reader to provide the ideas. That I would get the ideas and, and the themes were only revealed to me after the book was published, published and read and responded to. And I've, I've gradually, since I've been doing this for a while, I've gradually come to the conclusion that, in a way, that's exactly the case, but that that's okay. So that I, I'm getting my ideas from you, and I'm finding out what the book's themes are from, from the readers. And I think that the, the next work... For me, always emerges from that. Someone always tells me in, in the course of all these post-publication exercises, what the current book is about. And it hasn't quite happened. It hasn't quite happened with this one. Although I think it, it may be, it may be getting there. And it's it's something like. People keep asking. Uh, some journalists, uh, some journalists, ask whether or not I look at these, this particular three-book movement, as three snapshots of the zeitgeist taken over the previous ten years or so, and. I was saying, no, not, ex- not exactly. But I've started, I've started to realize that, that, the, thing that I'm, the thing I'm disagreeing with is snapshots. What I think these three books are is a sort of very, like a decade-long pinhole exposure on the first decade of the 21st century. And in some very real sense the camera doesn't move very much the you know the film the film stays where it is and the decade the decade passes and the my characters in some ways repeat actions from from the previous from the previous books and so the whole thing becomes the three books become a sort of palimpsest where one book, that one narrative is superimposed on, on another. And at the end of the sequence, you're, you're looking through it all back to, back to the beginning. At least it's like that. It's like that for me. And I think that's about all I have to have to say about it. So you can see why I never like to address these questions. But thank you very much.
2: I, I get the feeling it's like there was an. Uh, uh, paper set for you, and there were a bunch of essay questions, but at the beginning there was just a little blank for you to write, What state concisely the theme of this book, and you just ended up turning over the paper and filling up the entire yeah. paper with that first question, never got on to the next one. I, I have a, a hypothesis, actually, about what the theme of the book is, uh, and I think that it's related to the themes of your other books, which is it's a kind of exploration of why Bohemia matters, what threatens Bohemia why it's so incredibly fun to threaten Bohemia and to exploit and commodify subculture and, and just why people actually run around doing it and how seductive that might be. Uh, and, and I got this idea when I went back and looked over the interview we did for the Globe and Mail in 1999, I think, for um, Tomorrow's Parties. And that's what we were talking about back then, too. We were talking about this idea that uh, marketing <coughs> companies and, and uh, corporations had figured out, how to commodify Bohemia so quickly that it may not even exist anymore, that we went from a year for punk to show up in the high street, six months yeah. for grunge, and, and now, then, it seemed like it was happening really quick. What I wonder, though, now that you're participating in this kind of network subculture, is do you see that still happening? Do you think that there's a, a big end who's going to figure out how to commodify 4chan? <laughs> you know, is Anonymous ever going to become a high street brand? I don't think so.
1: I have my sense of it is that we've rolled over into into something else, and Bohemians don't don't live where they used to. It's like it's distributed now. It it might not even be. <clears throat> You know, people who seem to be full-on bohemians, whatever that would mean today, uh, often seem seem archaic to me. It seems, it's almost an archaic stance, but I meet people who have really strong splinters of bohemianism (laughs) through otherwise conventional Personalities and lifestyles, and that seems to that seems to be that feels
2: new to me. Do you think that this is uh, that that um, this is a feature and not a bug that we've kind of figured out how to make our peace with the commodification of the things that that are personal and and how to kind of peacefully coexist with this commodification by allowing these splinters to to be to define our identity instead of saying I am I am goth, fear me.
1: Yeah, it might it might be, and it but it might also it might also be that commodific, that kind of commodification may be may have made itself less possible through the the virulence of its previous mechanism. Like we may not. We no longer grow. We we no longer grow the full beef
2: of Bohemia. It's all veal now. <laughs> and, and does Bohemia still matter? I, I got the I get the impression when I go back and read the earlier books that there's a that there's kind of lurking in them a belief that um, Bohemia it's like it's like our our. Uh, soul. It's like it's the secret wellspring of our power uh, as people and that when it goes away that we lose something that we never get back again um, but you know in, in the last three books you've really made taking away people's bohemia for fun and profit seem really exciting and somewhat cool uh, does bohemia still matter did it matter then Were, was, am, I, am I wrong about the relationship you had to bohemia in the earlier books
1: no, I don't think you're. I don't think you're wrong, and it's. I don't think. I don't feel as though I've. I've. I'm reneging. On it, but. I think it's nature. I think it's nature has changed. I. Th- I think Bruce Sterling was the first person to suggest to me that. Bohemias have been the dream time of industrial societies. And that was really, really resonant for me. But if we are in fact a post-industrial society now, are Bohemias the same thing? Bohemias may have been a function of the modern, project and now we're so, now we're somewhere else and and all of that impulse may have been paid forward into something that we can't yet really really see because it's so it's so new
2: hmm so back in 99, we talked about Japanese subculture, which in 99 was was still pretty firmly bohemian. You kind of, you needed to really work at it yeah. to be a North American anime fan. Yeah. Uh, whereas today, you kind of have to work actively to avoid it. Yeah. Uh, and at the time I said, Japan, well, Japan's kind of cool, but why not China? And you said, Chinese popular culture has never evoked that instant of "Whoa, what's that?" And that was '99, obviously. that was before just before the WTO, just before the largest migration in human history, just before China assumed factory duty for the rest of the world, it's probably true that like 95 percent of the manufactured objects in this room came from somewhere near Guangzhou. Uh, do you still have the how do you feel about China these days? You know that container ships are showing up in your books is is China on your mind
1: you know it's still not doing it for me <laughs> and i don't you know i don't know i don't know what that is, except that i'm i'm not really in the business of registering whoa, you should check this place you know it's it wasn't uh I think because I got in a bit early with the Japanese thing, like I put I made Japan a, a superpower in in my fiction about two seconds before the world noticed that Japan had actually become an economic superpower. So they said he's he's prescient. Look, he saw he saw it. But actually I just liked japan and I, I continue to find japan a really a really interesting really interesting place. I try to find China a really interesting place, and you know i 'm a, 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 a monthly faithful giant robot reader, and you know I keep hoping that they will lead me into some some wonderful hookup with with Chinese Chinese pop culture, but it never quite it never quite makes me makes me jump. I like it I like Chinese popular culture better when it's left home and being affected by another place.
2: What's and, an example it, of that?
1: Well giant robot off right. the off the top.
2: But not, is Singapore still Disneyland with the death penalty?
1: Mm, I'm not willing to go back and find out.
2: (laughs) You know, it's funny. When I went there uh, a few years ago with Bruce Sterling, uh, everyone I met said, you know, we're not Disneyland with the death penalty. Literally every single person I met, they've got this complex about it now.
1: Well, you know, good good for me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they'll do something about it. (laughs) So... You say you had the uh, inadvertent prophetic moment with Japan and, and you were just introduced as someone who's prophetic. And I, I, My reading of, of the way you think of your work is that it's anything but prophecy. Is that right? Yes. And, and so what is it? It's presentism. What's presentism when it's at home?
1: Well, when you... My, if, I were try, if I were teaching a, a science fiction writing course... I think i would I would tell, tell tell my pupils that the way to have people think you 've got some sort of you know, inside inside deal on what 's going to happen is to look at all the things that are around you in in the present moment and find the ones that have the most interesting or obvious legs to carry them carry them into the future. And because really I think that's how that's how we all do it. We may not all, all think of it in in the same way, but I, you know I'm currently assuming that all science fiction is based on the author's sense of reality. Now, And that's certainly how we read it in retrospectively when we go back and study science fiction historically, that it's not about the future, it's about 1948.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really think that this is the case. I think you find out a lot about... Uh any cultures, fears, and aspirations for technology by reading what its science fiction writers were predicting about the future. You find out almost nothing about the future yeah, that right. they entered, but you find out a lot about yeah. their present. I, I brought this up on a panel once at a convention, and Silverberg said, oh yes, that's the Robert A. timeline business. Uh, so Robert A. Heinlein was always putting these long timelines in his books of, of what he apparently earnestly thought was the future. Do, do you think that there's like a moment in which science fiction writers understood that that was just hubris or do you think it's even, do you think that we've actually reached that or is it a small elite club of SF writers who feel this way?
1: I don't know, I grew up with those, I grew up with those timelines. I realized recently thinking about my childhood that I educated myself in the history of the previous 20th century by reverse engineering 1940s science fiction. Mm-hmm. So I found 1940s SF before I had ever read any history at all and even you know even before the 20th century was on on television and the 20th century was quite a lot of my basic history history education but I had to reverse engineer all those astounding stories that I would find moldering in the, in the backs of magazine shops. I had to figure out what the world was in which they had been written in order for them to make any sense.
2: So for me the fascinating thing is what happens when readers read science fiction and go on not to write more science fiction, but to make stuff. And to make stuff that has the science fictional bit in it. When Motorola yeah. engineers go out and watch a lot of Star Trek and come up with a flip phone. And yeah. you know, you imagine somewhere Roddenberry's going, I predicted it. But it's not really a prediction at all. And you've had certainly a lot of those uh, crop up. What's your relationship like with them? Is there a kind of fatherly pride, embarrassment, something in between? well i was i didn't
1: think i mean when when I started writing science fiction i didn't you know i didn't even think of myself i didn't think of myself as a person a person writing cautionary tales and and i didn't think of myself as a a person predicting predicting the future but you know, in the course of writing, I realized that I was describing some fairly troubled relationships with with technology and trying to, de- to describe the emotional to some extent the emotional lives of people living in those relationships with technology and that seemed to me to be at the core of what I was doing and I remember being slightly taken aback when I first met people whose reading of reading of my fiction was completely technical and who felt nothing but enthusiasm and a burning desire to build it and have <laughs> it right have it right now.
2: I would like to have the emotional life of a Panther modern. How do I go yeah, about achieving a, that? How can I
1: how can I how can I do how can I do that?
2: So but you know well, I think it's because they were all so bohemian, right? I mean, you know, for all of their, their failings and for all that, you know, Molly Mirror Shades had to go be a sex slave in order to get her claws implanted, she was insanely cool, right? I mean, she was, she was part of the bohemian world, and, and she was not some self-loathing trustafarian in, you know, uh, Brooklyn or Shoreditch. She was like the real authentic thing. Uh, and so, of course, people who read that stuff went, gosh, wouldn't it be awesome to be like that?
1: Mm, I suppose. I mean, I never thought that they were that, I never thought that they were that remarkably bohemian, those characters. I think it depended, I think it depends on one's experience level. I mean, how, I mean, and to some extent, look Molly's cartoon-like, there's actually, there are a couple of uh, point of view flaws in Neuromancer where the book suddenly acquires a narrative voice, which it's not actually supposed to to have in quite that way. And one of those is one in which it, it suddenly goes off on this rant about how how Molly is like Bruce Lee and Clint Eastwood. <laughs> and, you know, she really she really is. She's like, at least in Neuromancer, she's like a, a really, really high quality cardboard life-size cutout. Hmm. Really, like, <laughs> glossy and high res. But she's not, you know, she's not that much of a not that much of a human. When she comes back later in the series, I was already, and she's older, and has had some setbacks, I was already trying to find the emotional bandwidth I needed to represent human beings more naturalistically.
2: So getting back to Zero History, I think Big End is is one of those... um one of those people who, for all that he's a bit of a cypher, he's certainly in the round in, in that you really feel his kind of chortling glee at pulling apart these authentic subcultures and turning them back into brands. And it seems like it's the mirror image of the street finds its own use for things. This is Madison, Addison, Madison Avenue finding its yeah, own use for, this, for in the Yeah, big finds street.
1: his own uses for things. For the street. For the street, yeah
2: exactly. So, you know, what's... Is, is, uh, is there a way that Big N could ever find a use for... You, we talked earlier about these diffused subcultures, and you said, well, they're too diffused to pick up, but some of them are just too toxic to pick up, right? Like, how would, you, how would Big N commodify something like Anonymous, who, you know, for, for all that they go around taking down horrible law firms that, you know, bulk sue British music downloaders, they're kind of horrible in a lot of really awful ways. How does how does that ever get commodified, or does it? Does did have they figured out the answer? And the answer is to just be so horrible that no one will ever you know just use the word fag as so often that no one will ever you know, turn you into a, a a brand.
1: Maybe. But in it, it's you know how would you. I'm curious about how you would define a bohemia, or even not define, but how would you describe a bohemia in the sense where we're both using it? Because for me, it, it has a lot you know, there are a lot of things one needs to to have a, have a bohemia. Bohemians have dress codes and uh, styles of. Of romance and and sexual mores favorite drinks, specific kinds of of music that traditionally they've mm-hmm. they've all had those they 've all had those things and i don't think we i don't think we have that i don't think we have that today because something's something changed something has changed and something's split off and I was walking through Covent Garden today and I saw a young man in a tweed jacket with a particular kind of beard and I thought, D.H. Lawrence, hipster icon. This is, these, <laughs> these guys are trying to look like D.H. Lawrence and that the way D.H. Lawrence looked is now much more powerful than what D.H. Lawrence wrote. Huh. Huh. And that, that that's... Uh, in some ways, it's not an entirely new ball game. I think it was happening. It was happening in the in the '60s certainly, and and maybe maybe earlier. But it's sort of become so much of the ball game now. And yet, there wouldn't be an entire. There wouldn't be an in, entire lifestyle attached to looking like D.H. Lawrence, the way there once would have been. It would simply be, the thing would be, to, you know, be a young man looking like D.H. Lawrence. And you could sort of pick and choose the rest of it.
2: So one of my favorite all-time William Gibson lines is, don't let the little fucker's generation gap you. And- which is a Neuromance, I think it's yeah. Dixie Flatline. And, and, you know, whenever I run up against a subculture that seems, inc- you know, just so offensive that it couldn't possibly be commodified, I always wonder, is this just... Am I just being generation-gapped? Am I just being leapt here? That, that in fact, if I were 17 years old, Anonymous would be, uh, would be just as cool a new tray as, you know, all the stuff I was into when I was seventeen, and I'd be right in there with my Guy Fox mask. Is that all that's happening? We're just old...
1: I don't know. I, I mean, it would be sad if, you know, I I don't have the feeling that nothing is happening. I, I just have the feeling that most of what's happening is is happening on some different field and has increasingly been happening on some different field since we had that conversation that, Huh. that we're referring back to that i think you know we said it was all going to be exponential change from then on in and perhaps it has been but not necessarily in ways that we're able we're able
2: to see so I want to segue from that into like uh, kids and parenting advice because I've been, I've been collecting cyberpunk parenting advice. I, uh, I asked Rudy Rucker when, yeah. when we were thinking about having a kid and he said, oh, you should have a kid. Kids kept me cool. And Rudy's a very, very cool grown-up. And then I asked Bruce Sterling and, and Bruce said, um, no matter how outre or bohemian I was, that I would inevitably end up embodying contemptible bourgeois normalcy for my kids someday, which is a very Bruce Sterling bit of... of uh, of, of uh, advice. And Pat Cadigan seems to thrive enormously on the adventures of her kids. And I know you were a stay at home dad when you started writing, you wrote your first several books, I think, at home with the kids, right? Yeah. So, so tell me about parenting and kids and generations, because here you are with your kids sort of thrusting themselves into the future that you never tried to predict. And do, does that make you want to predict the future? Do you ever go, gosh, I wish I could think a little more clearly mm-hmm. about where my kids are going to end up?
1: No, it actually fills me with some, I think it fills me with some anxiety when as a non-futurist civilian walking down the street, I sometimes try to imagine the actual world that, that my kids might be living in in 20 years. And it's a different, you know, it's a different sort of a different sort of ball game. I don't, you know, but as for like like being a a cyberpunk parent, I doubt that, I I really doubt that I would have written very much if we hadn't had kids when we did, and if it hadn't fallen to me economically to be the one who stayed home and took care of them because I wrote really my first three novels as the house parent while my wife was teaching at university. And you know, you have little kids, they go to sleep and you write, they wake up and you quit writing and they go to sleep and they go to sleep and you write, you can't go out, you can't go to the pub or a coffee shop while, while they're sleeping, you have to be there. And it helps if you're very poor because you you can't afford anything to distract yourself while they're while they're sleeping, so you' right, and it was you know it's good it's it's good that way. The thing that one of the things that makes me feel weirdest about science fiction is that moment when you you hear a science fiction writer who you've always had had some respect for, go into one of those after us, the deluge rants, that invariably kills it for me. That, you know, you're with somebody you're with somebody who was like incredible, whose work was incredibly stimulating when when you were younger and they're older now and they they Go into one of those. The kids are just fucked. Everything is going to be bad forever. It's never going to be as good as it was when we were, we were young. Look what they're doing, and you know. And for me, that's really that's like the ultimate turnoff. There's something that just sort of quietly shuts
2: down. Right? Ah. well. So so uh, kids. Uh, have picked up on a kind of 20-year-old, 25-year-old meme and turned it back into a subculture that has all kinds of funny little network corners, and that's steampunk. Uh, and I'm uh, writing, supposedly writing the, uh, right now, the, 20, the introduction to the 25th anniversary edition of the, of the Difference Engine. Yeah. I don't know what to write yet, so I thought I would start by asking you what would you like to have said about the Difference Engine 25 years later?
1: Hmm, that it's an incredibly peculiar piece of work. And basically just that. Like I it's the only it's the, <laughs> just that it's the only one of it's the only novel that I've ever written any of that I go back on a fairly regular basis and reread for pleasure. I don't don't do that with my own solo, solo outings, but the Difference Engine can still, you know, just I open it at random and read a bit and it fills me with with some kind of loopy delight and in part because it's so damned peculiar. It really is an extraordinarily odd piece of work and I, I, you know, given the personalities involved, I think it's a miracle that it exists at all. <laughs> what makes it so peculiar? Well, when Bruce, when Bruce discovered the word processor, and he beat, me, he beat me to that because his father had had an apple. <coughs> his father had had an apple too, and had gotten an apple to see, or maybe a Mac, I think his father had gotten the first Mac. And he gave Bruce the Apple II. And Bruce had never used a, a computer before. And he called me up from Texas. And he said, I've got this machine here. It changes everything. And I said, oh, I don't know. It's still words in a row. And he said, no, no. He said, you can, you can chop it up. You can move the bits around, he said, and you can airbrush the joints. he said it's like it's it's like Burroughs cut up method, but you can airbrush the joints, and you can't see the difference. And he said, and you can file the serial numbers off anything and so I went out and got one and and was quite quite happy with it, but I didn't really discover what he meant until we were well into. The Difference Engine, large hunks of swaths of which consists about 80% of wonderful, copyright-free Victorian pulp literature with the, the, you know, well, they didn't even have serial numbers. Just like, put it, you know, collage it in, airbrush airbrush the seams, and you've sent your character through something that's so much weirder than anything anybody in the 20th century could ever, ever have imagined. With, with, uh, and often with a huge specificity of, of detail. And whenever I find myself reading, reading one of those parts of the thing, I, I'm just like, you know, it makes me chortle with, chortle with delight. There's a, <clears throat> I find a. They find a, the corpse of the, the Texas ranger who killed Sam Houston's, President Houston's publicist in London. And the corpse is found in an attic. And, and in, in this garret, there are dead cacti in cages hanging hanging on the wall. And that's just a detail from an actual sort of, you know, police-illustrated monthly (laughs) murder scene. There's no explanation for it. It's just part of the (laughs) actual Victorian
2: reality. Today you could have copied and pasted that text out of, like, Google Book Search or the Internet Archive. You wouldn't have even had to rekey the old Victoriana.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. And Bruce spent, you know, Bruce did obsessive yeoman duty in the vast Victoriana collection of, of the University of Texas mm. to photocopy those things and, and mail them to me in Vancouver, and we'd go, ah, oh, look at this. So they what we could do.
2: Make Magazine just asked Bruce why he thought The Difference Engine came out, and 20 years later, steampunk subculture emerged. And he said that he thought that... Um, anything that was too geographically diffused to field its own zine or to uh, uh, you know, form its own convention just didn't start as a subculture until the net came along. And the net made it possible for geographically diffused groups of people, like people who quite yeah. like dressing up in brown. What's her name? Uh, uh, Sherry Priest says steampunk is what happens when goths discover brown.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's actually my, my single favorite ever statement on steampunk. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, so you, th- you buy that, you think that this is why, that this is what happened in the intervening 20 years, it's just the internet, or well, is there something about our moment?
1: I've never been completely sure. You know, I wouldn't want to be the first to say that, that steampunk derives exclusively from from the Difference Engine. The Difference Engine is is obviously a sort of proto-steampunk artifact and has a lot of, you know, passionate, wacky descriptions of gear yardage. But it doesn't, the visuals, you know, the visuals I had with the Difference Engine don't look that much to me like the visuals I see coming coming out of coming out of steampunk, and i actually haven 't been with a few marvelous exceptions haven 't been that impressed with very many steampunk artifacts so I
2: have a prop now, uh, so when I blogged this, you said it was what did you say you said it was the um, probably the single best steampunk objet I've seen. What you didn't know is that I'd already bought it. This is Absolutely. this crazy steampunk fetish mask from uh, from uh, a guy named Sergei in Ukraine who calls himself Bob Bassett for reasons I don't entirely understand, who makes these these awesome, crazy-ass... I think they're modeled on old Soviet gas masks, these, these, these things. So <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what you think makes this different from the other steampunk objet that you've seen?
1: One way in which it's remarkably different is there's no extraneous decoration. Hmm. And there's an, an excess of, <clears throat> there's an excess of extraneous decoration in, in quite a lot of steampunk makings. And I think it comes from an, uh, probably an, instinct to reverse modernism's stripping of, of, deco- of decoration. But when you simply reapply decoration to late modernist objects, it I don't know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. It was, the modernists got rid of it because they perceived most of it as being a kind of florid romantic, Kitsch, anyway, and putting florid romantic kitsch back on something doesn't, doesn't make it better for me. This, however, is completely bent and, <laughs> and peculiar and slightly, slightly disturbing.
2: <laughs> you know, I, it strikes me that the kind of inverse of steampunk subculture is mall ninja subculture. Because its mall ninja subculture is all about not admitting that you're pretending, and mall ninja subculture is, is about this kind of it's a posture of deadly seriousness. You know the, this. You know as near as I can work out, the mall ninjas in Zero History have their origin in this wonderful shrine to the mall ninja on the internet. Is that right?
1: Mm, I, w- I wish they did. No? They, they, I know the shrine to the mall ninja, <laughs> but the mall ninjas in near, Zero History have their origin in a in a a web gal- a web galaxy of, of stuff for people, who aren't military and aren't law enforcement officers, but who, as near as I can make out, want other people to think that they're probably carrying a gun. Yeah, and
2: yeah, this is it's a- every accessory ever conceived of for a Crown Vic. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah absolutely, it's and yet i don't think they are carrying guns <laughs> so i can't really i can't really see where the, the fantasy goes and it's interestingly it's the the mall ninja look is the opposite of what security people call the gray man look which is the way the way you dress when you're you're carrying a gun and you don't want anybody to to notice you to notice you at all. And the guys who do that wear baggy khakis and these days almost invariably striped polo shirts. Striped polo shirts in Afghanistan are the new I'm an operator badge.
2: Wow. And if
1: you wore one if you if you wore one in Afghanistan without being an operator, someone would tell you not to not to do it.
2: Do they? Uh, is it is it just gang colors, or is it something about the way that a stripe shirt deforms that hides the stripes themselves? Are like razzle dazzle?
1: No, it's it's things like this are almost things like this are almost arbitrary. It's a power mm. costume, mm. and it actually goes with a particular cut of beard. I, I was told <laughs> I was told recently like like a particular shape of beard baggy baggy sort of you know Ralph Lauren polo chinos and a regular short sleeved wow, horizontal profiteer
2: striped. chic
1: yeah so. and it could but it could have been it could have been anything I mean it could have been a cowboy
2: shirt Hmm.
1: But it's Only just, then they
2: would have blended in in Brooklyn again. So. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's just the code. But none of those, none of those guys would be caught dead wearing any, any of those tactical, tactical things. Yeah.
0: This Intelligence Squared podcast is supported by Audible.com. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com debate.
2: Well, I think we're at Q&A time here. Uh, yes? Um, did you have someone specific in mind when you were imagining the character form? It's just that to me, it's slightly... Most of us tend to have at least one character that is kind of them, or
1: is kind of stand-in for them. Mm. So is
2: Milgram a stand-in for you? Mm,
1: no, not... Not entirely, I mean not in, any, not in any literal way, although Milgram has an, an unusual advent story compared to most of my characters. Most of my characters arrive gradually and while the, the characters are the part of the, the narrative that comes in for me when I'm not actually writing like 99% of it happens for me when my fingers are tapping on a keyboard and it doesn't really happen otherwise. But the characters tend to sort of ghost in gradually and build, build themselves up in my peripheral vision. But with Milgram, when when I was trying to get spook country started, I was playing with the idea of using brown, the... Milgram's captor, the man who becomes Milgram's captor in in the actual book, I was playing with the idea of using that character, who's a bad guy, as the other viewpoint character, which was something, something I hadn't done before. And I couldn't get it to work, and I was writing a scene that ultimately made it into the book, where Brown is picking a lock to get into Tito's room to change the batteries on, on some sort of bug hidden under a hat rack. And I just could not get the lock done. I'd been like three days, I couldn't make it, you know how when you just can't make it go, go forward. And in this sort of really half-assed way, without thinking about it at all, I put a stick man in front of Brown and gave the stick man the point, the point of view. And the stick man was un- unlocking, unlocking the door and then Brown shoved him into Tito's room. And literally as the stick man crossed the threshold, he became Milgram in very, very large part. And within five minutes he was obsessed with how the the benzodiazepine tablet was melting under uh, under his tongue and it, 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 I could feel very viscerally what his relationship with Brown was. And it, it, so it's very unusual, that's very unusual for me and he became a really valuable character in in that the way he's sort of his Neurological damage and specific pathologies rendered him the perfect lens through which to observe, for me to observe certain parts of of the narrative. But he's not he he's not so much based on on my sense of myself. He's not really based on my experience at all. I've never been addicted to benzodiazepines. In fact, I chose benzodiazepines so that there would be no possible way for anyone to <laughs> romanticize <laughs> the drug use in the novel. And just about any other, any other drug that people can abuse has some sort of culty thing going on
2: around it. Right. But no, no one's ever going to go benzo-chic. No. Yeah. Next question. We have a mic. A show of hands, please. Yeah, there we go.
1: Um, hi there. Was, was there any kind of moment that you decided in this first
2: book, before the, writing the first book in this trilogy, that you wanted to write a character, a uh, a cultural recycler like like Big End?
1: No. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> Big End... I originally assumed, I assumed in pattern recognition that Big End would be, uh, initially assumed that he would be an occasional walk-on character. whose job would be to walk on, give Case Pollard some impossible mission and charge up her American Express card. And I really thought that that was all he would be doing. As soon as I got him on stage, he started spouting quasi-situationist gibberish that, that seemed to to make a weird sort of sense. And, you know, I, I sort of backed off and and let him go for it. And, you know, lo and behold, he became, I think, the only the only common character straight through the three the three books, and like I had no I had no idea, and i 'm totally happiest working from the dream state. I only wish it were easier to find it.
2: I always thought that big End had uh, was kind of the, the bizarre world Bill Gibson recycling pop culture and making money out of it and
1: yeah, he might be, although I know that I was thinking today, I guess because I'm in London, that my very brief and not really not very major Hollywood involvement with Malcolm McLaren has a, something to do with something to do with end because in in Mac, McLaren in Hollywood up close was literally you know sort of the most like the perfect chancer. Hmm. He just didn't care, or you know, he really didn't care about the outcome. Other than he was, it seemed as though he would do anything at all just to see what was to see what was going going to happen and he could run rings around Hollywood business people. He just couldn't get them to do anything. <laughs> or he, could, he could terrify them into, a, into an amazing, uneasy silence which I thought was a pretty good trick.
2: More questions? There's a hand up in the balcony. I don't know if you're allowed to ask from up there. Do you want to give us, give us Juliet from the balcony. <laughs>
0: It's interesting in what you're saying about um, China versus Japan. Um, I think when your blog before you referred to yourself as a happy consumer. Do you think that um, maybe being a happy consumer isn't doesn't maybe work with being interested in China? Do you think that there's a kind of connection
2: there? So the question is, does being a happy consumer put you at odds with finding out too much about China?
1: No, I tend to be a happy consumer of things from Japan. <laughs> In large, in large part, to the detriment of my, of my wallet. Uh, it may be, you know, what you're suggesting about China may be part of uh, why it, it hasn't really, it hasn't really grabbed me in the same way that Japan has.
2: Although it's funny that, like Foxconn assembly line suicides. Have a kind of horribleness to them that salaryman working yourself to death and dropping, or you know, jobless recovery, giant collections of broken people and camping in the parks for twenty-five years in Tokyo seem to not have that kind of of uh, of horribleness that we associate with with Chinese uh, factory life.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, it's 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 fairly. It's fairly arbitrary, but i mean it's not that i've i don't have you know i live in i live in Vancouver happily surrounded by tons of contemporary chinese culture and it's very very nice and i'd be un- i'd be unhappy if it I'd be unhappy if it went away, but it's still not where I look for oh, the, some spark of, it's not where I look for novelty in, in the same way. Not now, it may be one day. I mean, there's, not, I, there's nothing inherent or absolute about it, but the, you know, somehow the Japanese just totally have my number. I can't, I can't help it. They, they get me going every time.
2: More questions. Uh, one over there.
1: Yeah. Uh, hi. You talked about the um, dream state and how you find it easier to write then. Uh, what advice would you give to uh, burgeoning young writers and writers in general in relation to that, in terms of um, how to go about turning their ideas into fiction? Well, I mean, I always go back to this totally annoying advice that Robert A. Heinlein gave, which I still think is the best advice for young writers, and it's that you have to write, you have to finish what you write, you have to submit what you write for publication. While you're waiting for it to be rejected, you have to write something else. And... You know, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. If you don't keep doing that over and over, nothing will happen. And I think I first read that when I was about 14, 14 years old, and I still think it's it's the best. It's the best advice. I mean, my way of... I wouldn't try to teach anyone to write the way I write, because, it, you know, it would drive somebody else crazy or lead them, you know, result in absolute failure. But if you follow Heinlein's advice, you'll discover your own way of doing it, which will be absolutely as peculiar and idiosyncratic as mine, but it will work for you because it's yours. And you won't, but you won't get there unless you follow Heinlein's advice. And you have to, you have to write. You have to sort of write all the time. And if for anyone considering becoming a writer, one thing you have to ask yourself is how comfortable you are spending big hunks of your time regularly in the absence of everyone else in the world. Because it's a, it's a solitary it's a very it's a very solitary thing to do, and I mean I can I sometimes imagine what it would be like living with a writer. I imagine myself married to a writer, and I just kind of go, "Ew!" <laughs> and then I look at my wife, and I you know feel like increased increased gratitude because she, f- for some reason, is the one woman in a thousand who's quite happy with a guy who goes in the basement all day <laughs> and, and only occasionally pops out but then goes into like like weird peripatetic periods of, of enforced self-promotion like this one <laughs> right. but really if you want to if you want to write you have to you have to write you have to finish it and you either have to submit it for publication or show it to another human being, and and you have to get used to get used to doing that. Other, otherwise, it's, it's unlikely that much will happen.
2: I think the best writing advice that I didn't listen to for the longest time was to write every day. And I always assumed that people who said that were like people who claim that you should drink, you know, sixteen glasses of water a day and exercise for an hour every day and eat five servings of vegetables every day, and they were just sort of kidding. And it wasn't until I started writing every day that I realized that a thing that you do every day, even if it doesn't become easy, it becomes automatic.
1: Yeah. Well, I have to turn up every day. And that was the... That was really crucial for me when I was starting out to get that. Like, there are days... There are days when I turn up and nothing happens. And... Or there are days when I turn up and I write a little bit, and it's just not good. But there aren't too many of those. And the important thing is is turning up and assuming the position and making oneself ready for the writing to happen, and then trying trying to do it. Sometimes you I I start and it's not good and it's not happening, and then suddenly it starts, and it's not. When the writing, I don't have any any control over when the writing thing comes. So the best I can do is to go every day to the hole in the fence where the writing thing is known to come. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it optimizes the chances the writing thing the writing thing comes, and the more if you can get the writing thing if you can get the writing thing really. Really going, it, it'll come every day for weeks on end.
2: More show of hands. You you need to wave at the microphone, people, not at the stage, people.
1: You oh, could I ask you about um, your relationship with music and if it's changed? I'm hi. <laughs> um, if it's changed from when you first started writing to now, and how you see music. Now, and in the future um. mm, well it 's much more when I started writing, I think i was I was near the end of a stage in a stage in my life in which I took it absolutely for granted that who I was was in some large sense, informed by who I was listening to. And in in some ways I see my, I started writing out of a sort of very delayed adolescence. Like I was about 25 when I started trying to take it, take it seriously, but in some ways I was a very young twenty five and it was all still terribly important to me who I listened to, and if you didn't listen to who I listened to, you probably weren't really really with it and I, I don't have that relationship to music now. I just listen to what I like to listen to and, and take what pleasure. I can from it, and I'm not at all evangelical. So I think that when I started, music was like the tail end of of the children's crusade of the 60s for me. And it was still sort of illuminated, illuminated with that. So now it's not, I think music is, Popular music has gradually become less of a source of imagery for me. That would be one way. One way to put it.
2: More questions. Hello. Um, I started reading Zero History on Sunday, on a Kindle, and I, I'm not very far through, but I swipe what are not longer any longer pages. And suddenly things are underlined, and it says, four other people highlighted this passage, kind of like when there's something really pithy. And it's a really strange experience to me as a reader that I can suddenly see what other people are
1: at a, that level are enjoying in a, in a book. I was wondering if you'd come across this and you find it as a new experience as a writer and how it might, might influence your writing going forward. Oh, I've never even heard of that. It's really weird. Is that the ordinary experience of reading on on a Kindle that other readers' interlineations (laughs) appear at your copy? Really, that's bizarre. Can you turn it off? (laughs) 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 It's one of the reasons, one of the reasons I I've never become a very keen library user. As though. I hate it when people write in books. It drives me it drives me mad. I don't care what struck them in in that in that paragraph. I don't care that they thought that sentence was good star. No, oh, that would drive that would that's so bizarre. Oh, very strange. I've I've actually signed the tech, I've signed an e-copy of Zero History, I think in a, in a Kindle edition, but on an iPad. I don't think you can do it yet on a Kindle, but you can do it, you can do it on, on an iPad. So, so I got a, a, a conductive stylus. No, that's not it, it's much shorter a strange, short, conductive stylus for signing, for signing e-copies.
2: I always use a Sharpie to sign the back, and people think it's great fun to have me sign the iPad, because I wrote that editorial about iPads, and I turned the apple into a little skull well, they and think crossbones. It's, they
1: think it's great. I can understand with you because there's history. because you've had issues but they think it's great fun to get me to sign Kindles too and I sort of, I go along with it but I don't don't really get it
2: Mr. Gibson, will you sign my cyberspace? Yeah (laughs) I brought this OED
1: That would be good actually Uh,
2: More questions? Uh, Bruce Sterling talks about uh, we're in an age of atemporality and that we're on a transition to nowhere and Charlie Stross, I think it is, talks about how when he writes science fiction it happens before he's finished writing the book. I'm sort of confused as to whether it's possible to have both of those happening at the same time and whether, as you said, to look at the stuff that's interesting around us and what have legs and maybe there just isn't anything really interesting around us at the moment.
1: Mm, I find... You know, I, I find everything. My problem is, I find everything increasingly interesting, and I just can't imagine where that's going going to go. I mean, you know, maybe when I'm older, I'll just gape at everything in in wonder. But <laughs> you know, you could do worse, really. But no, I find this an extraordinarily Interesting, interesting, and complex time, but it it does change so quickly that tr- extrapolation in the traditional sense has become very difficult. I think that when I was first reading science fiction, which would have been in really in the late 1950s the the consensual now was three or four years long and with three or four years of relatively unchanging now a writer of science fiction had had the space in which to erect something like Heinlein's goofy future history. You could build, you could. You know, with that long a now, you could build a relatively big structure before that now hauled itself into the future that made your big structure obsolete. But t- today, now can feel like a news cycle. It's like the now is too is too now and too narrow to allow for that bigger construct. We have too many uh, too many wild cards in in play with regard to our future to casually erect believable futures. You know beyond beyond a few years, or it feels that way. It feels that way to me. I'm aware, sometimes when I sit down and think, okay, what could I do if I were going to do 2060 next time? And you know, what am I gonna do about global warming? What am I going, you know, there's this long list of, of things that one has to account for now in order to to make a a satisfying 2060.
2: Didn't you say Neuromancer was optimistic because it wasn't set in clouds of radioactive ash?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I really felt, I genuinely felt when I was writing Neuromancer that I was committing an act of wholly uncharacteristic optimism because I was depicting a world in which there had been a nuclear war, but it had only been a tiny little nuclear war and it had caused the multinationals of the world to basically balkanize the United States and make sure and somehow cripple the Soviet Union which had remained there rusting away and make sure they never got into it again. Because it was bad, it was bad for business, and that's implicit in the backstory of, of neuromancer. And I was very careful working that in to make sure it was fairly, it was fairly readable. And I, it was just like this crazy. It just felt like this glorious wish fulfillment thing for me because in 1981, when I started thinking about doing something like Neuromancer. There were lots and lots of perfectly realistic and intelligent and well-informed people in the world who quite reasonably assumed we just weren't going to make it. And one of the things I find interesting about the world today is the way in which that the psychic reality of that Cold War fear has so completely evaporated that it's almost impossible to convey it to someone who didn't know it.
2: You don't think hysterical Islamophobia, the kind of way out there, you know, they're they're secretly going to put mosques at every sacred site to Christianity kind of madness is is not just just where that free-floating anxiety landed?
1: Mm, Maybe where the free-floating anxiety landed, but it's bonkers. Whereas the belief that, that the United States the assumption that the United States and the Soviet Union were going to vaporize each other and everyone else in the process at literally any minute wasn 't bonkers yeah, yeah. it wasn 't bonkers, it was all you know ready ready to go and came very close it came very close a couple of times, and he isn't, it wasn't. It wasn't tribal. It wasn't tribalistic. It was technological,
2: hmm.
1: and hmm. so it's a, it was a different, a different sort of fear.
2: For the record, I think Charlie's just being silly. Uh, you know, speaking as someone who's writing a novel with Charlie, whenever we come up against something that seems like it may exist today, we just make fun of it. It's it's a very easy futuristic technique to adopt, and he's been doing it at the rate of about two hundred and fifty thousand words a year for about four years now, without without uh, showing any sign of slowing down. And it's great work. So I, I think that he's, he's worrying about nothing.
0: I, I, I'm i over here. <laughs> I was um, wondering, there's an interesting kind of parallel with this. Um, I My background is in anthropology, as somebody who kind of remembers being very young and watching... Uh, What turned out to kind of be now contextualized as the last vestiges of modernity really falling down, like kind of the the Cold War ending and and having that weird straddling of sort of history as knowable, which then collided with history as sort of actually unknowable, and then went on to study this. And one of the things that's interesting is you read about like the golden age of anthropology where people think. They can know, and they can predict the future, and that the point of kind of a lot of human endeavor is to get that predictability in there, versus this kind of crisis that happens with thinking, and really in the in the 80s, um, and goes on through the 90s, where the knowable isn't really knowable for a huge host of reasons, like this sort of humanity comes back into things, and I wonder if you feel like maybe some of the shift in this cycle of the new is not just, like, a technological reality, but is also sort of, like, a totally different paradigm that kind of comes in because the hubris kind of evaporates, like, after the, the structural reality of, you know, the Cold War and what modernity was kind of seen to mean and deliver falls down. You know, you're left with a reconceptualizing of everything. Well,
1: yes. I couldn't... <laughs> I like that I like that, although I, I couldn't paraphrase it to save my to save my life, but <laughs> it sounds very much like the inside of my own head sometimes, so yeah, something something like that. I do think that that there are Sort of overlapping and ongoing and innumerable paradigm shifts underway for us right now in a way that isn't entirely un- unprecedented. I think if we if we looked more closely at what the Victorians went through here, we'd we'd find some very similar tonalities. Things changed, changed here very quickly and and not everyone liked it, but they also had no idea how crazy it made them. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that's going on, if I could know, if I could have anything from the future, just one body specific body of knowledge from the future and that would be all i could get i'd want to know what they what they think about us i'd want to know how they see us because i think that would be the crucial thing because if you look at the way the victorian's saw themselves as opposed to the way we see them and that's continuing to change as our forensic abilities increase there's just no no comparison they had relatively speaking no self-knowledge I would propose that from the point of view of the future we are equally without self-knowledge
2: well put I think we're at time is that right? Well, it remains only for me to thank you, Bill.
0: Thank and to, you. to say
2: that if, you've, if there's one quote I'll take away from this, it's, my problem is that I find everything increasingly interesting. I think I'm going to have it on my tombstone. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So uh, It's a good way to be. We'll be in the lobby next. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.